Um, if you're here this morning, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles, uh, and we're going to meet each other in Genesis chapter 26. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have one on you, one of the, the, the Bible verses will come up on the screen for us this morning. And if you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on the way in, uh, and you don't own a Bible, consider that Bible our gift to you. Uh, we love the Bible here at Veritas Church, and uh, we want you to value it and love it and see Jesus in it as well. We'll start together in Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. The words of God to us this morning through his word read like this. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Let's stop right there for now. So if you've been with us, um, maybe in the fall this past year, as we've been walking through this story of Genesis, um, and maybe you were here this past weekend or streamed it online, uh, Ryan preached for us that classic story of Jacob and Esau, right? The two brothers born in contention with each other from the get-go. I mean, Jacob's even born, my namesake, grabbing on to the heel of his brother, right? So from the get-go, you, got, you guys know this is Jake the snake. He's the deceiver. He's the heel grabber. He's the one that, like, I mean, you just can't trust that guy as far as you can throw him, right? So he's just a, a deceiver. He's kind of set up as, as a bad dude, right? But in, in Genesis chapter 26, we start this, and the focus is back on Isaac, the dad, and so you might be thinking like, whoa, 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 what just happened here? What happened to Jacob and Esau? That's where the story goes, right? That's what advances the kind of action of the plot. Why are we doing this whole kind of stop, rewind thing? Um, it's kind of like one of those old uh, VCRs. If you're tracking with me, if you're you know, Gen Z in the room, you have no idea what I'm talking about. There's, there was these things called actual video cassette tapes that you had to like put it in to an actual box. And then you had to walk up to that box. It didn't have a remote. Nobody knew where the remote was. You were the remote as the kid. You had to go walk up to the TV and press the button, not the pause button, the stop button. <laughs> the stop button, and then press rewind. In this story, this is what is happening here. It's like there's been a stop button been pressed, a rewind button, manually rewinding the story back a little bit to let us see something, to tell us something. And Genesis 26 is... It has a really big purpose in the midst of the story of all of Genesis. See, the point of Genesis 26, I think, for us this morning is to pause the action in the advance of the story of Jacob and Esau to refocus on the story, the whole story of Genesis. What is God doing? What story is he telling here? Who are the main characters in this story that God is telling us through Genesis, uh, the whole book of Genesis. See, the main characters in the beginning of the story is first and foremost God. The first words of Genesis are even, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
In one sense, this is a summary of all of God's action and all of humanity. He is a creator. He is foremost. He is ultimate. But then there's a second character, if you will, introduced into the story, and that is humanity. It's us. It's man. There's God and man in this story. And in the beginning, there was heaven and earth. But this place, this garden, this Eden, this place where God and man dwelt was lost. And so the story advances after that in that there was this curse given to the snake and there was this promise given to the man and woman. There was this going to come, this snake-crushing rest-bringer that's supposed to come back and restore us to God, that heaven and earth place, that garden place where God and man dwell together. But we've seen already time and time again in the story of Genesis that man cannot do this on his own, left by himself, Man is wicked, ultimately. God has had to send judgment on man due his sin, but also with that judgment, he's brought about his promise to restore God and man back to the place of unity, back to the place of communion with him. God himself must intervene if man is ever going to be restored back to himself. See, Genesis 26, as we'll see, could be misunderstood as just a history lesson. It could be misunderstood as, okay, these are the the life and times of Isaac. Let's hit the high tops on this guy's life. Maybe maybe it could be misunderstood as just a cautionary tale. Here's what these things, and yes, it tells us those things. It has some implications for us. But Genesis 26 is showing us ultimately about the character of God. This story is about God and his character on display. And in particular, how God relates to those whom he has called to his own. So you will see this story in four main movements, and these will come up on the screen. First, we'll see God's promise in verses 1 through 5 that God will be present. Second, we'll see Isaac's failure in verses 6 through 11, that Isaac is not special. Isaac's going to fail. Just like the rest of humanity, just like his father before him, Isaac's going to blow it, but... God will protect. The third thing we will see is God's blessing that God provides. And we'll see that is a gracious provision. And finally, we'll see this covenant of peace that God is going to preserve. God is going to remain faithful and God is going to remain true throughout the whole of Abraham's life. Let's continue looking at this in verses 1 through 5. So as I read those first verses earlier, you might have been thinking, mate, I've heard this somewhere before. If you've been with us in uh, the book of Genesis, these words uh, we've heard actually time and time again, God reiterating the terms of the covenant back to Abraham. Let's remind ourselves of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and to your kindred and to your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the original promise, covenant, if you will, of a promise to Abraham. God is going to bless him. He's going to multiply him and through him all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed blessed. They're going to be brought back to that place of God and man. But there are major differences, are there not, with this in 
the promise made in Genesis chapter 26. Look down with me at these verses right here in front of you in 26, at verse 2. The first thing out of God's mouth when reiterating this promise and covenant to Isaac is this, a warning first. Do not go down to Egypt, right? The story starts like this. There was a famine in the land, and then the words out of God's mouth are, don't go down to Egypt. But when you hear the words, now there was a famine in the land, in a Bible story, something pricks in your ears if you grew up in the church, right? You're like, I know how this ends. Somebody's about to do something incredibly dumb. Like, that's what happens every single time. Okay, there's a famine in the land, and then someone's going to do something dumb. Now, this warning from God precedes this covenant. And then the second thing we see here, it says, don't go down to Egypt. I want you to stay where you are. Unlike Abraham to say, go, he tells Isaac to stay, but not really stay. This is almost like a rent-to-buy situation, like a rent-to-own kind of situation with a house, right? He uses the word sojourn here in verse 3. Verse 3 says sojourn. See, either way, however you interpret this, this is an already-not-yet situation where he's saying, like, I'm going to give you these lands, but I just want you to sojourn here right now. You're not going to get it quite yet. But look with me at verse 3. Verse 3, God says, sojourn in this land and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I'll give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. The difference here in verse 3, it's different, is that God promises his presence to be with Isaac. See, time and time and again, God has promised to bless God has promised to provide. God has promised to bring about things that were going to happen. This is the first time we see God promise his presence. I will be with you is significant. And then verse 5 says this. I will multiply. Oh, In verse 5, it says this. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments and my statutes and my laws... He hangs this promise on the faithfulness of another. That all the blessings of this covenant is based on the faithfulness of another person. Namely, on the the faithfulness of Abraham. Now, it doesn't change that those blessings or make them lesser. It just shows that the promises of God's blessing and presence is given by grace, not because of Isaac's works here. Isaac's not done anything. To earn this. And just to make that clear, we're going to be told the next story. Look at verse 6 with me. We'll read this story together. I'll read it out loud. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Hint, hint. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could she say, She's my sister? Isaac said to him, Lest 
because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, if you're with us through the story of Abraham, you're like, not again. Come on. This is now the third time this story has been told two times with Abraham and now for the third time with Isaac. It's the same old story. It's the same old song. Like, what is the deal here? The apple has not fallen very far from the tree. Like, God, you couldn't have picked a better one? My gosh. Maybe we can go find the other guy, you know, wandering around out in the desert with the bow, right? No, God has chosen Isaac. See, we've heard this story before. Telling the men of the city that Rebekah was his sister, leaving her, his wife, wide open for the, the, the possibility of abuse, of neglect, of rape, the possibility of her being taken as the wife of another man? My gosh. See, he does all of this, Isaac does, because he wants to save his own skin. He's ruled and dominated by fear. Does this sound like a faithful, God-fearing man? See, ruled by his fear, Isaac walks the same cowardly footsteps of his father, and that same story plays out. But graciously, even providentially, Rebekah was protected in this story. Let's pause here from the narrative for a moment. When it comes to fear, don't we do the same thing? You're here, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. In the face of fear, do we not follow and just pull out the same old bag of tricks that we think are going to get us out of the situation yet again? Now, whether that's deceit or trickery or lying, like Isaac and Abraham deployed here, or it's just a straight-up opportunity to trust God, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, we tend to take things in our own hands, do we not? When things are out of control, anger explodes. When your anxiety is mounting, you think, I've got to have my fix. Got to have that bluebell ice cream. Got to have that now, I'm a, I'm a stress cleaner, y'all. Like, when things get out of control, my anxiety starts going through the roof. You can ask my wife. You, you, when, when you see me carrying, like, five different things that go five different places, I know in my head, oh, I know what I'm doing right now. Things are settling in. The mounting anxiety is here. And in, in the midst of that mounting anxiety, it's easier for me to be sharp with my kids. It's easier for me to think, wrong, sinful thoughts about others. It's easy for him to think, I mean, you just got to get out of my way right now. When fear swells, we tend to do something that makes us feel in control. Isaac deploys the same tactics as his father. He walks in the same sin patterns as his father. Now, many of us, if you grew up in the church, you may have this idea that um, sin patterns can attach themselves to a family. Now, I don't claim to know whether or not that's true at all. But what I do know is, if you've seen something, and you've seen it used time and time again, you can't do what you don't already know. 
you see a certain sin pattern play out in your family, it's going to be easy for you to play out that same sin pattern in your own life because you've seen it before. We continue here. See, here God intervenes, but not at the request of Isaac. See, he allows for Abimelech, the pagan king, to see Isaac, and in the Hebrew here, Isaacing his wife. Okay, little Hebrew lesson right here. Remember back when Isaac was born, his name was He Laughs, right? His name is Laughter, the son of laughter. He's born because his mom laughed when she heard as a 99-year-old woman, hey, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, what? That was the exact response. She laughs, and at the end of the story is they have the baby. He is the son of the promise, and they name him son of laughter. Now, in the, in the Hebrew here, when Abimelech peeks through the window, if you will, he, you know, you can call him a pervert or whatever, he's looking through the window, and he sees the son of laughter laughing with Rebekah. You put two and two together there, right? You know what's going on, because Abimelech right after this says, she's your wife. Of course she is. Of course she is. That's the word play here. See, after this, Abimelech knows definitively that they're married, and Isaac finally spills the beans to him. See, this episode ends with the king issuing a decree that anyone who touches them is going to be put to death. And we might need to ask ourselves for a moment, why this decree? Why would a Philistine king issue such a decree? If you hear the term Philistines, you know, like that's the dude that David fought, right? The big Philistine, bad guy, Goliath. Yeah, that's him. Anytime if you're a Hebrew, you heard the term Philistine, you're like, those are the bad dudes. We hate those guys, right? It's kind of like the Cowboys for what used to be the Redskins, and they're not anymore. It's the Washington football team. So I don't know what about the rivalry now, or Duke and UNC. You know, it's like those are the bad guys in the ears of the other dudes, right? Why is this Philistine king pronouncing this just decree here of not to touch them or they're going to die. See, whether he was aware of it or not, it lines up with this warning that's contained to the promise of Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 12, verse 3, it said, I, God said, I will bless those who bless you. Him whom dishonors you, I will curse. See, this Philistine king sees the danger of defiling one in whom God has set his blessing. Almost like Adam and Eve in the garden, the story mirrors that. It is messing with the story to show us that like Adam and Eve were told not to take of the tree of, 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 of eternal life, of good and evil, lest they die. This warning now follows that what could have been a disaster for this Philistine people, this whole tribe, could have fallen under the righteous, just judgment of God because of one man. One commentator noted the absolute selfishness at the hands of Isaac in protecting his own one life by risking the lives of an entire city. I mean, could you imagine if one of us tried to pull a stunt like this? I mean, we don't even have a category for stuff. This is really messed up. Like, there's no blog post in the Gospel Coalition of how to handle this church discipline case. It's not there. See, what I don't think and through this story, is that God is saying that the actions of Isaac are okay at all. 
See, Abimelech was certain that disaster was going to befall their whole kingdom if anyone touched them. And Isaac would deal in contention and conflict with the Philistines for years because of this. Even in the next stories that are going to to come after this, Isaac and Rebekah seem to be at odds with one another, in particular with the way that they treat their sons. See, there are consequences for his sin. So that's the end of Isaac, right? God's like, nope, he didn't make it. Let's wipe the slate clean again. Back to the flood. No. You would think it would be the part of the story where God appears to Isaac to say he's off the team after doing something so harebrained and dumb, but surprisingly, God does the unthinkable. God shows his infamous grace and blessing. Let's pick up the story in verse 12. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more and more until he was very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth, all the wells that his father had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. If I'm honest, this blessing of Isaac, right after this story of his failure, it makes me uncomfortable. It doesn't feel like justice. It doesn't feel right. With the way God blesses Isaac here, I think that we are all to be reminded that God's grace is always undeserved. God's blessing is always because of grace. You ever wonder why it's common practice as followers of Jesus that we've adopted this practice of praying before meals? Now, I don't know about you, but like I grew up in a family before every single meal was normally my dad or my grandpa or whoever it was sitting at the head of the table would pray a prayer before every meal. And yes, it kind of, my grandpa, it was kind of the family joke. He just said, Father God, blah, 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 blah. And it just kind of like this was running, kind of mumbling thing. No one could ever understand what he said. And my dad, you can understand him, but it was like always the same thing every time, but with a couple maybe like specific things thrown in there that were pertinent for the day. But this practice of praying before every meal has been adopted by followers of Jesus over time to remind us that all is grace. Even the food, even the most mundane of things that you got to do. There's only a couple things that you got to do every single day. You got to breathe and you eat, and there's a couple other things in that, but That's pretty much it. Praying before eating reminds us that the the, the health that allowed us to get up and even put our pants on to go to work, to go get the money to buy the food, is grace. Just opening your eyes is grace. The job you have is grace. The food on the table is grace. Through praying in thankfulness, even the most mundane things of eating, We are being welcomed to remember that God is sovereign and good, whatever is on the table. Whether it's a Thanksgiving feast or just that hot bowl of ramen that you got that day, right? That's it. All is grace. Whether you are blessed like Isaac here, I mean, you've got the lay of the land, you've got steaks, you've got baked potatoes, you've got everything you could possibly want on the table, 
Or if you've got practically nothing on the table, all is grace. It's all undeserved. See, seeing all of life like this has an effect on us. As we do this cumulatively again and again and again, by seeing and believing in God's grace in all of our life, no matter our circumstance, it shapes us. It shapes us towards faithfulness to God and looking more and more and more like him. Let's fast forward through this next story ahead that shows us this in the life of Isaac. So by his grace, God shows Isaac wealth and riches, and then afterward we're told a story about some wells. I know for us we're like, "Ah, I don't get the wells thing, I don't get it. Think of it as it's just retelling the story of Abraham. He's, He's digging wells just like Abraham. Same, same, right? He's reopening these places of of blessing, places of life throughout the land. That's what water would have been at that time. You can survive if you've got water, right? You can make food if you've got water. And this is what he's doing throughout the land. The first well he digs that recovers is called Essek, meaning contention, fighting. Remember the Philistines? He's fighting with them over them. Well, number two, he calls it Sitna. It's enmity, it's hatred, anger. I mean, it's parallel to the same word of God's curse on the snake and the name of the snake. He pretty much calls the well Satan. Not, not, not kidding at all. Like it literally lines up one for one there. And then we get to well number three, where finally he names this well Rehoboth, room. And then he says this, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Seems like, slowly but surely, Isaac really is maybe beginning to not only replay the failures of Abraham, his father, but the faithfulness of Abraham. Is this grace taking its effect on him? So let's see, let's pick up the story in verse 23. Verse 23. From there, Isaac, remember, he went up to Beersheba. That should perk up our ears as the place where Abraham met Yahweh. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And then we see the response of Isaac here. So he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Something is different here. Has God changed? No. Isaac has changed. We see that God goes, to, I mean, that Isaac goes to this place, Beersheba, the place where Abraham met God and worshiped. It's a high, holy place, a place where there's trees planted there. It's like a garden-like place where Abraham meets with God, where heaven and earth seem to come together at this place. We see Isaac go to that place. And when he gets there, what happens? God appears to him. God comes to him. And we see Isaac's response to God's action and appearing to him. He builds an altar, an act of trust and dependence. He calls upon the name of the Lord, an act of of worship here that's continual. Like, I'm going to stay here and worship. This is going to be my place of worship. He even pitches his tent there. I'm going to sojourn here. This is the place where I'm going to dwell. It's like saying, putting a stake in the ground. This is permanence. 
saying, I want to be where God is. See, we tend to return to places of of kind of magic in our own lives, do we not? Maybe it's a, a mountain that you've climbed before, a trail that you've been on, a place of beauty that you tend to return to again because I saw something there. I had a feeling there. I had emotion there. God met me there. This is what is happening with Isaac. He goes here and says, I've met God here. I'm going to stay here. I want to be where God has met me. And the last thing that Isaac does is he digs a well. And the way this Stories written leaves kind of a dot, dot, dot afterwards. We got names for wells for all the other ones, but we did get what this, this one is called. So let's see this last detail about what the well shows us about how God preserves those whom he has made a promise. Let's start in verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to him, why have you come to me? This is the pagan king, Remember? seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you. And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just if we have not touched you, and have done nothing to you but good and sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast. They ate and drank, and in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Siba. Therefore the name of that city is Beersheba today, and the name of Siba sounds like the Hebrew for oath or covenant. They call this well covenant. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Again, this story is a play-by-play replay at two times speed on that old VCR of Abraham's interactions with the two commanders of the same name back in Genesis 21. This is the same stuff again. The pagan king comes to Isaac, and when he's asked to leave his kingdom to declare the presence of God is clearly with him. He sees that God has been with this man. He is the blessed of the Lord. After this, they exchange oaths. And you know what? The name of that well comes up here, and they call the name of that last well covenant. So what do you have here? You have a covenant of peace between Isaac and this Philistine king in a city named the Well of Seven or the Well of Perfect Covenant. This between the blessed of the Lord and the king of the Philistines. And, and you know what? The king, what Philistines means is it's derived from the word wallower, like a pig in the mud, like covered in filth. That's, the, that's what the, the Hebrews would have heard in their heads every time they said the word Philistines, the wallowers, the dirty mud people. Maybe it might be unclear to you, but this story shines with gospel truth. This story is pointing forward to what Jesus would do. He, the blessed of the Lord, not, he doesn't hide, he comes and offers to make a covenant between us, the dirty, the messy, the broken, the mud people, the dirt people. 
We're told this in Jeremiah 29. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. That I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, I know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is a promise to be back in God's presence, to be back where we're made to be. But then there's this question of how will our iniquity be made no more? We know who we are. We are the broken. We are the sinful. We are the ones who fail just like Isaac. See, God's answer to all of this, even though we are like Isaac, we're playing the sins of our fathers again and again, deserving righteous judgment. We need a Savior who will suffer death so we can live. God's answer to this is the cross. On the cross of Christ, Jesus would die for our sins. The cross is where God would establish this new covenant where our sins would be no more and that we would truly know God. We know Jesus as the true and better Isaac, the blessed one of God, who does not hide like Isaac, but he trusts and walks in perfect faithfulness to God and he protects his bride, us as the church, at all cost, even the cost of his life. Jesus comes without the trappings of earthly riches. He doesn't have flocks and herds and money to to show us and to entice us with. But as the creator of all things, he shows us that through himself, he is going to restore all things to himself. Jesus shows us that he is the meeting place of God and man on earth, and he proves it. He proves it by mediating the truth of God by his word as he teaches The heart of God in his healing, in his restoration, in the power of God, in his resurrection. Jesus then shows the humility of God by coming to us and personally extending the offer of his covenant of peace with us. Matthew 26 verse 27 tells us this, that Jesus, he took a cup on the night that he would be betrayed, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here this morning, this offer is still on the table. Believe, drink, be filled, have your sins forgiven, partake of Christ who's poured out for our forgiveness and for our sins. Believer here in this room, if you follow Jesus, continue to believe. Continue to believe and see all of your life as a gift of God's grace. It doesn't matter the situation you find yourselves here in this room. This is the beauty of the church of Christ. Some of us are poor in this room. Some of us are rich. Some of us are commanders. And some of us are Absolute grunts in the 82nd. And we are here on equal playing field at the foot of the cross. 
This is the place where the kingdom of God shines, where there is no hierarchy of greatest and least. Jesus would even say, the least are to be the greatest. If you want to be the greatest of all, you must become the servant of all. This is the gospel on display for us. This is the good news on display for us. Some of us come into this room with addictions, with doubt, with real struggle. Some of us come in here with fervent faith, willing to just pour out everything we have because we are satisfied in Christ. And we come and we are leveled at the foot of the cross, having our deepest wounds met in Jesus, having our highest joys met in Jesus, seeing our love for each other, seeing that as a byproduct of what Jesus has already done in us as a gift of grace by giving us of his very own spirit. Church, believe. You're a follower of Jesus here. God is with you. He is present with you like Isaac. So much so that his presence changes you. And church, you need to believe that. After long stretches of time, after wandering through that promised land with digging up wells that are filled with dirt, feels like meaningless work, God is meeting you in that. Hear these words from John 14. This is what Jesus would speak to us this morning, church. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He's going to bring to you remembrance all that I've said to you. We don't have to worry. Peace. I leave with you. Jesus' covenant, it's a covenant of peace. My peace, I give to you. It's a gift. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. It doesn't come with strings attached. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let them neither be afraid. Church, if we are to be who Jesus is calling us this morning, we're going to be honest about our doubts. And be honest about our wounds, our pains, our joys, our griefs, our highest of highs and our lowest of lows. Because this is what true discipleship to Jesus is. It's a life on display like Isaac's, where we see his faithfulness and his failures. We see, ultimately, the character of God, that it is God who saves. It is God who justifies. It's God who brings us to himself. It's God who changes us to look more and more like himself. We're going to live into the vision that we have together as a year to be a church that's soaked in this culture of discipleship. Our only hope is to continue to cling to the promise that Jesus gives us even in Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I'm with you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Church, cling to that hope. If you're not clinging to that hope, it's going to be impossible to try to give that hope to someone else. To see other people come to know and follow Jesus, to try to disciple your kids. Now they need to see you in all of your fullness of brokenness and at your best. Your kids, your family, and other followers of Jesus need to see us wholly dependent upon God. And we pray it would be so. Lord Jesus, you are good. You are king above all and in all. Jesus, you've shown through this life of Isaac, which is our life. A life that is marked by your promise upon us, a promise of your presence, a promise of 
your hope that you bring to us. Father, I pray, would we hope in these things? Would we believe that your blessing is for us? Your blessing is upon us by the power of your spirit, sent by Christ himself as the greatest gift that we could receive in receiving that eternal life, the eternal life that you want us back into, where we can commune with you, God. I pray that as we move into a time of response now, would you prepare our hearts as you've been molding, shaping, and softening through the songs and prayers and through this word that we've received in Genesis 26. Really believe the good news of the gospel this morning. Really believe we can be honest with you, God, about our, conf- our, our, our doubts. We can be honest with you, God, about our failures because you see it already. But we can trust you in the, in the midst of that. No matter the life circumstance that you've brought us here into this room, the ground, the foot of the cross is level, and your will is to bless us there. We pray that in your name. Amen.